Video recordings of this podcast can be found on RaisingEquity.org and Raising Equity on YouTube. All right, so we're going to go ahead and get started. Um, I want to welcome everyone. I really appreciate you taking time to come. I'm Dr. Kira Banks. I'm creator of Raising Equity, where we're committed to raising equity nerds, kids who are aware of the social identities of themselves and others and have the ability to analyze systems of oppression to build the change that we want to see in the world. These past few weeks have been challenging in all the ways, and I've had several parents reach out to me and ask, like, how do I talk to my kids about what's going on? from George Floyd to Amy Cooper to Breonna Taylor to Ahmaud Aubrey, just to name a few of the flashpoints. And in the wake of all that, I think it's really important that we build a community of parents and people in the lives of children who are committed to giving them the tools that they need to understand and interrupt. So we put them in select sports and rigorous extracurriculars, but I think we need to be just as intentional about helping them understand the systems around them. Did you know that one of the reasons the University of Minnesota divested from the police this week and no, will no longer hire them to be on campus for events is because of the young people, the young folks in the African-American studies program there. They pressed for it. And it was a reminder to me that they don't have to wait to be adults to engage in social change. But that requires that we help them understand what's happening now in real time. We need to have ideas of what we want to say on the spot in response to questions that come up unexpectedly. <laughs> We also need to think about what we need to be teaching over time. What are the seeds that need to be planted to support deeper understanding? So to that end, I am beyond grateful for these panelists who answered the call when we reached out. Uh, these are parents who also have an analysis of racism and are willing to share what those conversations in their lives have looked like in these past few weeks and beyond. So we have with us Nicole Lee, who's a nationally recognized diversity, equity, and inclusion expert and leadership coach. Bomani Johnson, founder of Emergent Pathways, which develops and implements strategies for building power via racial and gender justice. Tim Weiss, a prominent anti-racist writer and educator of over 25 years. And Adelaide Lancaster, co-founder of We Stories, an organization that uses children's literature to create dialogue about race and equity. So I just wanna be clear that we start this conversation from a place of how we talk to our kids rather than if because we know that by preschool, kids have already picked up our adult baggage about race, yet conversations about race are more likely to occur in families of color. So it's a conversation that we should all be having that we shouldn't avoid, but that's easier said than done. So tonight is one step in building a community of parents committed to raising equity. So in addition to doing this work professionally, I'm a parent myself. I have two kids, they're 10 and 13. And we've been having conversations about race and racism since they were in preschool. We're in St. Louis, and so the killing of Mike Brown Jr. punctuated their early education. So I'm really glad we started educating them early about their history as Black people so that the police brutality wasn't their only reference point for their Blackness. And this week, conversations have varied. The 10-year-old expressed sadness at the, at the death of and the murder of George Floyd, but was clear that he didn't want to talk about it. So my response was that it was indeed sad and unfair, and I followed that up with lots of hugs as opposed to words. The 13-year-old on the other hand had a lot to say and asked lots of questions. He signed a petition on Instagram and wanted to show me that he did. We had several conversations about the history of policing and violence, and that while it was one man who had a knee on George Floyd's neck, that there's an entire system of policing that props up that behavior. So I want to get my panelists in on the conversation by way of having them introduce themselves and share a bit about what the conversations have looked like in their homes. Nicole, you want to start us off? 
Sure. Um, so, yeah, my name is Nicole Lee, and um, I am a mother of a 10-year-old and a 7-year-old girl. And um, much like um, what has already been expressed, I knew just because of my work how important it was to talk about race at a very early age and really instill and encourage a lot of pride. Um, so we have a lot of talks about race. Um, I would say, though, this week has been um, unique, right? Um, I, um, besides doing uh, racial equity work and inclusion work, I also co-founded an organization called Black Movement Law Project. So I often am very busy at times when there are uprisings and doing legal work. Um, but maybe the last time I was so busy was a few years ago. So given the fact that we're in the middle of COVID-19, kids are home virtually learning, this is really the first time my children have been home when I've been so busy. And so the conversations have been pretty interesting. Some of them have been you know, kind of punctuated by like, mommy, hey, like you're gonna help me with this math problem, right? But other conversations have been more serious. I actually introduced the idea or the notion of what happened with Amy Cooper to my oldest daughter, because we've been talking about why words matter. Like for her and her life right now, it's like why you don't text any old kind of thing to your friends. For me, this was like a teachable moment for her, even though she's black. I wanted her to know that people use power in ways that are really inappropriate. I also wanted her to be prepared and look out for ways that people may use their power um, in, in a negative way against her because of race. And so we were able to have a pretty robust discussion. Now, it's not the discussion I'd have with an adult because she's 10, but it was age appropriate for her. And we actually never really talked about George Floyd, which is so interesting, but we did talk about the protests and the uprisings, and that has been something we've talked about this weekend. Now, very much like what Kira is saying, my seven-year-old, um, she kind of stays on the periphery and she's a little more sensitive. And so um, when we've talked about it, she says, that scares me. And we've just really acknowledged that and hugged her up. And there are conversations that I haven't had in front of her that my 10-year-old's prepared for, but she's not. Um, I think that it's, it, this is the first time, um, this week is the first time that I think my daughter, my oldest daughter, kind of understands a little bit more why I do what I do. Instead of it just being, why are you leaving? <laughs> why are you traveling? She does see this connection um, with systemic racism that she didn't have before. And I think a part of it is her age. She's now being exposed to literature for her age group that really is talking about systemic oppression. Things that, yes, we've introduced her to. She's not just going to find them any old kind of place. So it's been an interesting week for us. I appreciate you sharing. Yeah. Bomani, you want to jump in? Uh, sure. Hey, everybody. Uh, and thank you, uh, Kyra and Nicole, for connecting me with Kyra uh, and being here. Um, so I have, uh, two kids. My wife and I have two kids, an 11 year old daughter and a six year old son. Um, and you know, one of the questions you asked is, you know, I was thinking about the first time we really started talking about race with our daughter. She was about maybe three and a half and she, we just picked her up and she said something about, we were driving home and she got two parents who are, uh, you know, our work centers around doing anti-racism stuff, wherever we are. So that's always been our focus. That's why we're together. That's what attracted, one of the things that uh, was really attractive to, uh, uh, about us to each other. Um, and so she says that she didn't want to be brown to her, her, her real staunch, hardcore, black is beautiful parents. And we're like, hmm, how do we handle this? <laughs> 
so 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 that was uh one and we started with i mean she's three and a half we was like well why don't you like brown what else don't you like that's brown and she was just like well i don't know i just don't want my skin to be brown she's like well you can't eat brown things if you don't like brown she was like i don't even think brown anyway and we're like burgers and she's like oh well i like burgers <laughs> so we were able to do that i mean since then we've had a lot deeper conversations with her um Ironically, this morning, you know, we had the news on, I think it was either MSNBC or CNN, and our son is six, and so he wakes up sometimes before the sun, the boy doesn't know how to sleep, uh, and he came into our room, and a lot of times we turn the news off because it's heavy, right, and uh, we are based in Atlanta, and the news skews towards the uh, black people are the worst thing that's that's ever lived. And so there's times when they walk in the door, if it's local news, we'll turn it off. Sometimes if it's national, and that might sound scary, that the national news is <laughs> more kind to us, um, we may leave it on. And we left it, I left it on, we left it on today on purpose just to see what he would say. And he started asking questions. He was like, why is, it was I think the scene was someone one of the newscasters was in, in Minneapolis and there were things burning behind the newscaster and there was conversation. And then they started showing, you know, clips of what happened. And they had a thing where it was like eight different boxes of the, the protests and the rebellions happening across the country. And he started asking questions and he asked, you know, like, well, well, why, well, why are those people so angry? And and so we, I told him, I said, well, they're responding uh, to an incident where a man was killed by a police officer. And he was like, police officer. And, um, and he was like, well, how did that happen? And I said, he kneeled on his neck. And he was just like, on his neck? He put his knees on his neck. And so we had that conversation about not just how, it, how wrong it was for that to happen. And he was like, well, did he get in trouble? And I was like, a little bit, you know, um, and part of what people are angry about is the fact that it took so long for somebody to, you know, to get him to, to, to really address this with him, to, to make him, you know, pay for what he did, to make him accountable for what he did. And, and it's still not happening. So that's why a lot of people are really upset. I said, but it's been going on for a very long time. And, you know, I didn't, I was I was looking at him to try to see if this was in something that he was engaging with or if he was just like, you know, all right, yeah, okay, so where's the cereal, dude? Um, but, and so he was. So we had a little bit more conversation about kind of what was happening and a couple more questions uh, and then he asked about his cereal. So <laughs> we, we, we went and got cereal. Um, yeah, I mean, it's... Uh, I mean, one of the things that I think that I know my kids are very are a lot more race and racism conscious now. Uh, we this year they went to a private black school here in Atlanta called Mhotep Academy. It's been around for twenty five years. Uh, was started by two black women, um, and you know they have a morning devotion every day where they start out and they sing the black national anthem and they uh, recite the. Uh, the motto from, um, oh my God, I'm drawing blanks now, that, that honors Fred Hampton and, oh, Marva Collins. And 
and it and then they have a piece about being black and how beautiful it is to be black and it reinforces so much of their humanity which is exactly what i need school to do uh more so than uh, uh reading writing and arithmetic and so we're proud about that and they are and they are a, lo a lot more open and understanding about what's happening in our world yeah i, I want to come back to that a little bit later because i've had black parents in particular and parents of color in general saying like how do you instill that in your children so i appreciate you sharing bomani what are things looking like in your house this week tim your kids are a little bit older yeah yeah it's um you know i have one that's a class of 2020 high school senior and uh and one who is going to be a rising junior so they're 18 and 16 right now and you know growing up in in my home um i think they probably didn't have a chance uh but to have these conversations, you know, probably earlier than a lot of white kids uh, and white families have them. I don't know whether that was good or bad. I think they would tell you that it was good. Um, I think their conscious awareness is, uh, you know, far beyond where I would have been at that age and where I think probably most 17-year-olds and, you know, 18-year-olds. Um, but this week has been, has been interesting. Um, my kids actually had seen the video uh, of George Floyd uh, and the murder of George Floyd before I had seen it. Um, the oldest was in a class, actually, you know, a Zoom class, but a class nonetheless uh, for her school that was last semester of the year, which was looking at black literary tradition from the black arts movement to Black Lives Matter. And so they were talking about issues of race and oppression and inequality in the classroom anyway. And this came up. And of course, they were talking about that as the as they were finishing up the year. And um, and so we had a lot of opportunity to talk about it. It was very similar to conversations we had had. Uh, in 2014, when when uh, Mike Brown was killed, it was very similar to conversations we had when Trayvon was killed two years before that. So in a way, we've been talking about this at least since 2012, when they were, you know, 10 and 8, but before that. Um, and so this week has just been a continuation of a very long, long seminar, in effect, that my kids have had no choice but to be a part of simply because they live in a home where I happen to live. And, you know, every kid wants to know what their parents do. Well, Here's what dad does, so I guess I'm going to have to explain it to you. And so from a very early age, we were doing that. And, and for us, what that meant was, um, you know, I remember sitting and having conversations with, with our girls um, about the racial imagery and, for that matter, the class and the gender imagery in Disney films, um, in things that they were being exposed to, which most kids are. So... What we did, for me, that meant when you're looking at media, so let's say it's Disney films, it could be television, it could be anything. It was about asking my kids questions. It wasn't about me necessarily giving them um, answers. It was trying to find out where are they? You know, so what's going on with you? You're seeing this news or you're hearing things at school. Tell me what you're hearing. Uh, when my youngest was in fifth grade is when Ferguson, uh, when, when the uprising in Ferguson happened. And I remember, you know, I went to their school uh, and I asked and we sat with the fifth grade class and I was asking kids, not just my own, but other kids, which is nerve wracking. Because when it's your own kids, you got several years to get it right. If you screw it up, you'll get another chance. Somebody else's kids, you screw them up, they're going to come for you, you know. So I was nervous. But when I'm talking to all of these, what, 10 year old, 11 year old kids, fifth grade, whatever it is. Um, just trying to find out what are you hearing? What, what, do, what do you know about it? And, you know, some of the things they knew were not accurate. Some of the things they knew were, but you could tell that they were picking it up. And so, you know, my advice to parents is always, and I know we'll get more into this as we go, but you have to know that your children are far more aware of race 
and the role of race in the society than you think they are. They are picking things up, not just based on what you talk about, but on how you live. Because what the research actually finds is, you know, I could sit and talk to my white kids all day long about race um, and the importance of racial equity and the importance of diversity and all of this stuff, right? But if the world that they inhabit is an all white world, right? So that their teachers and their classmates and their coaches and their, you know, so our kids are dancers. And one of the great things was early on when they were in the, the dance company, they were in for the earliest years of their formative years as dancers and as just human beings. You know, one of their main choreographers was an African-American male. To have a black male, not just a role model, but an authority figure, right, who is helping shepherd them through the process of becoming better dancers and becoming these strong, self-confident people. These are young white girls having a, you know, it's important for black folks to have other black folks in those positions of authority, but it's also important for white folks to have black folks in those positions of authority. And so to have that is more important than all the talking I could have done. I could have talked about the importance of black role models, brown role models, the importance of people of color and positions of authority. But then if they didn't have any, then what I say undermines or what I do undermines what I say. And so part of it is about how we talk uh, to kids and asking questions as much as anything, but it's also about the kind of life we try to construct for our children experientially, because that's what my mom did for me. You know, she put me in a preschool at Tennessee State University uh, where I was one of only three kids that, that wasn't black. It's a historically black college. The kids there were the children of graduate students or professors. It was in North Nashville. And that was important because the women that ran that program were black women. So I'm three years old in Nashville in 1972, you know, having authority figures of color tell me what's up. Like that, yeah. that matters, you know, that makes a huge difference. And so I think it's about how we talk, but it's also about the kind of life we live. Absolutely. And we'll, we'll get back to some more tips specifically for white families. I appreciate that. Adelaide. Yeah. So um, as I was saying, I'm uh, here in St. Louis. Um, I have a nine-year-old, an eight-year-old, and a six-year-old. Um, and my, I think a couple of things just to sort of complement what has already been shared. Um, I would uh, say to parents out there that are listening, um, I am an individual who uh, believed and was on a um, anti-racism journey before I became a parent. And I hadn't really considered what my own learning about uh, race and racism was, how that was going to look different when I became a parent, right? So I was kind of on an individual journey. I became a parent. I didn't really do very many things different. Um, my family moved to St. Louis in 2012. Um, and when my uh, daughter was four in 2014 is when Michael Brown was murdered. And for me, that was a moment of reckoning as a person and as a parent to realize that actually my, the practice that I had in my head and the ways that I talked to other adults was not translating to my family life. Um, even though I, I think I had some conception that just kind of like by osmosis, right? Like what I know about and care about would just kind of like also be in our ether. Um, 
So in 2014, I had a four-year-old, a two-year-old, and a newborn, um, and I uh, had no idea how to delve into a topic that I really cared uh, deeply about. Um, and so we began uh, actually uh, first talking about racial difference. I used children's books to help put those training wheels on for me because I didn't know what a four-year-old conversation looked like. I didn't know what it looked like to talk to a two-year-old. That had never happened um, for me. I knew how to talk to other 35-year-olds. Um, or I thought. Um, and so I use children's books as a crutch. That's a tip that, you know, we can definitely um, uh, revisit later. Um, but I chose to start a conversation about racial difference because that's where I felt like our, um, what, what our family needed to learn and practice. And then we moved into conversations around injustice. Um, I didn't tell my children about Michael Brown's death, even though it had uh, greatly activated and captivated me and I was active in our community until eight months after he was murdered. But my daughter was four and she still remembers that day. It was the day that we also got a Black Lives Matter sign and put it in our yard and I told them I don't, my son was only two, he doesn't remember it, the other was a newborn, but she, she remembers that. And so um, the other thing that I think is, that I've done is kind of create these milestone moments or conversations that become part of their history. And so when she remembers that now, she will say, or she has said, I remember when he was killed. And I'm like, actually, I didn't tell you for eight months. And that's an important part of the story because I was, you know, developing my own muscles and getting comfortable myself. And actually, I didn't, I didn't know what to say for eight months. Um, and, and so you that was the following, you know, spring. Um, this week, uh, much like what has been shared, uh, that has started our, our own family seminar. <laughs> um, so this week, we have, um, you know, talked a, a lot. Um, I, my three kids have very different reactions. Um, so my daughter is uh, old enough that she's researching news on her own and um, is uh, actively engaged and looking for information. Um, I have a middle guy who absorbs for a very long time and then maybe won't articulate for six months or a year later. And I'm kind of not sure where that information, it, you know, is necessarily going. Uh, after talking, when I raised this topic at dinner, um, or what had happened in the news, I said, um, you know, hey guys, I really want to talk to you. Um, like the truth is there's actually been some really sad news this week. And they knew. Um, they knew because I had also started the conversation, you know, last week or 10 days ago about Ahmad Aubrey, and we went on a walk together to, you know, really um, spend some time thinking and talking about that. And I am just sharing that because I grapple with it, right? So for some, for one of my kids, that's very reinforcing about how large the problem is that we face. Um, and then my other son was like, did anything else happen? Or was that the thing that you were going to tell us? And it's like, do you tell me why you're saying that, right? Does it feel normal? And he's like, it happens a lot. It does happen a lot, right? And then my youngest, um, gave a speech um, to the rest of us, which was um, uh, endearing. And then I was sharing with Kira, he started to say, I know that white women would not do what white men are doing to black people. And I was like, well, um, actually, like, let's get, you know, into that history and the other story of this week. So um, it's, it's an ever evolving uh, situation and conversation I know we'll get more into. Well, actually, let's let's dig into that a little bit more specifically. The white 
parents on the call or on the webinar to talk a little bit about how you balance sharing about like the harms that white people have engaged in and this like the systematic ways in which racism has been violent and problematic without instilling guilt and paralysis. And then also to pick up on what you were saying, Tim, you talked a lot about like modeling with how you live, like the proximity that you have as a white person that that speaks volumes or the community, like who's the last person that you had in your house? Like you might talk about having a black friend, but are they the friends that you invite over? Like, can you talk a little bit more about tips, strategies, suggestions, things that you wish you, you know, that you want to share with folks about specifically being white parents? Sure. Well, the, the piece about guilt, I mean, this is one that I, I talk to teachers about this all the time. And I talk to, to white parents about this because I remember when, and I don't remember which of our kids it was, but I think it was the youngest was in kindergarten. And this conversation came up because the uh, kindergarten teacher who was white was wanting to do a lesson about Dr. King uh, with the kindergarten kids. I think it was maybe right after the holiday when they had come back from the holiday and um, yeah, she want to do a lesson. But if you're going to do a lesson about Dr. King, you sort of have to contextualize why Dr. King and the movement did what they did. You also have to talk about how Dr. King died, if you're going to be honest, and why. And that's deep stuff for five-year-olds and six-year-olds, right? So the fear was, how do I do this in a way that won't scare the hell out of the black kids in the room? Because that's a thing, right? Um, if you talk about oppression, talk about systemic injustice. Uh, and how do you keep the white kids from being feeling like, oh, God, you know, this is what white people do. And my advice to her, and it's my advice that I give to other teachers and to parents, is you try to start uh, as white parents. I'll just speak to that piece. Um, you start with allyship and solidarity. And that means that if we're going to talk about oppression, rather than starting with the oppression, we're going to talk about resistance to oppression, number one, uh, on the part of black and brown folks leading that struggle. So that gives them agency. So they're not just, um, you know, this, the, the objects of history, they're subjects of history. And then you talk about white allyship historically. So, you know, I live in Nashville, and this is one of the primary locations of, you know, the classic civil rights struggle. So to talk about solidarity and allyship here is not very difficult because there were a lot of white folks, not nearly enough, but there were a lot of white folks who were involved in that struggle, both in the Nashville Science Movement and afterward, that were involved in groups like SNCC. I, I'm lucky to count several of those white allies as friends and, and mentors of mine, as well as, of course, black folks from those organizations uh, as well. And so when I'm talking to my kids or I'm talking to other parents about how to talk to theirs, if you learn about the history of white allyship, which we don't learn, it's not just that we don't learn the contributions of black and brown folks in American history, very specific white people we learn about and others we don't. We learn about founding fathers, we learn about war generals, and we learn about millionaires or billionaires, rich entrepreneurs and, you know, industrialists. We don't learn about warriors for, for economic and racial justice. We don't learn about people who have joined that struggle. And so when we leave that out, we leave white children with the idea that they have two choices. One is to be the oppressor. The other is to be the passive bystander who maybe stays on the sidelines and claps, oh, Dr. King, that's great. And Rosa Parks, that's great. And Frederick Douglass, that's great, you know, but doesn't have to actually get their hands dirty and do the work. And so I think if you start with allyship and solidarity and you look at it from a historical perspective and then start asking kids, you can ask them really young, what would you do? 
if you saw someone being mistreated or knew that someone was being mistreated on the basis of the color of their skin or something. I did this with my, my oldest kids preschool class when they were five-year-old, five-year-old preschool pre-K class. And the night before I'd been at UNC talking to college kids, not nervous at all, knew I had to get on a plane, come back to Nashville, talk to preschoolers, was terrified. But that's what I did. I went into the room and I said, listen, um, you know, this is Nashville. And I don't know how much you know about the history, but this is a place where people have stood up for justice and for fairness. And I went through a very brief history of it. And these five-year-olds stayed with it. And I said, now tell me, what would you do if you saw something like that happening? At that point, I hadn't told them that things like that still happen, but I was going to get to that. I said, what would you do? Let's start with that. And of course, every five-year-old, you know, it's like, oh my God, I would say, stop. I would, I would, I would say, no, you can't do that. I, they all got very animated. And of course they did what five-year-olds do. They all repeated what the last one said, acting like it was an original thought, whatever. It's like, fine, you're being repetitive, but I love the fact that you're engaged. And then we started talking about the fact that there may come a time when they're going to need to put into practice what they just said. And we talked very briefly in very age-appropriate ways about what that might look like. To me, that's what we can do. We start with resistance and we start with solidarity because that empowers our children not to feel as though they don't have agency or that, they, you know, it's helpless, that they have a role to play. Yes. And it reminds them that, that the story of resistance is also long, right? And so that we don't have to just that's maintain right. the status quo. Absolutely. Adelaide, I'll let you get in here and then um, we're going to shift to focusing on what's happening in Black families. Yeah, I, I completely uh, agree and echo Tim's point about the importance of agency and just a simple phrase that I can um, offer that uh, that has helped us is um, when we are talking about um, any, um, you know, whether it's historical or present day, um, we often add instead of like, that's the way it is, or isn't that sad, or that's a shame, right? Those are some of the scripts I had in my head from conversations when I was younger. We replace that with that's why we and then you fill in the blank. That's why we're talking about it. That's why we went to this place. That's why we're by, you know, reading this book. That's why we have a Black Lives Matter sign. That's why we went to the protest, whatever, whatever the sense of agency is. I think that's really important. Um, I don't, I, I'm like very half-baked on this uh, conversation around guilt. Um, I worry that our worry about guilt stops us from engaging, right? And I am, if I had to think about all the things that I'm most worried about, I'm more worried that my white kids are going to be apathetic or that they are going to carry racial resentment. Like those are, I think, the, those are the worst case scenarios for me in terms of their sense of race and their own racial identity, that they don't care, they don't think it's a problem, they're resentful. Um, have a chip on their shoulder, or um, if they just don't think it's a problem, right, or have anything to do with them, like they don't see themselves as part of the picture. So I don't, to me, grappling with guilt, I grapple with guilt. I, I think it's part of life. And it's also part of being um, a white person and a, and a white ally. Um, but I learning to do that and get comfortable with that and not having that be a barrier feels like an important skill and capacity for them to develop. So I attend to it, but I don't 
stop um, or, you know, um, caution too much, um, you know, because of that. Um, So the way that we often, or I try to phrase things is that this is our legacy. The fact that you are white matters. Um, It is, uh, you are given different opportunities and you are afforded different privileges and you can choose to use that power as was already shared by our panelists. You can, you can choose to do our legacy, repeat our legacy or not. That is our, that is our choice. And that is our, you know, way into it. Um, I know shame's not great, right? We don't, I don't try to, you know, trigger that. I don't think that's useful for, for people, but um, the guilt comes from the accumulation of apathy and violence. Like there, you know, we've got, we've got a long way to work out of that. And I'd rather be a part of working out of it than avoiding it and accumulating it. Absolutely. Thank you both. Um, let's turn our attention and talk a little bit about what's happening for black parents. Um, how do you balance sharing about the tragedies and the, the history of systematic violence um, without instilling fear or what I have heard other people that other people ask me like, well, how do we keep their self and self-esteem intact as we tell them about all of these atrocities? Um. I mean, one of the things that we talk about in our house is, is and Tim said it before too, is that we talk about that, that, yes, that there's a history of tragedies, there's a history of genocide, there's a history of all of these things, but we also talk about the history of resistance. We talk about the history of, of how, uh, regardless of the situations that we have found ourselves in, there was this shred of thing, and that thing was hope that our people held on to, to figure out how not only to survive, but how to figure out ways to have little pockets or little times where we can not only thrive, but also even build things that were, that were not just for us, but really benefit all of mankind in a sense. They, they really go outside of our communities. Um, about uh, maybe two years ago, maybe about two and a half years ago or so. Well, no, probably about, maybe now about like, three or four years ago, um, when I lived in Silver Spring, um, I had the kids with me and we went to, I worked at this co-working space. Um, and we went there cause it was, I'm a consultant. And so a check was coming. So we went to see if the check was there. And when we got there, um, picked up the check. Yay. It was there, but there was also the book and it was the black power 50 book. So this was 2016. And, my daughter grabs and reads everything. So she grabbed a book because it was mine and she was looking at it and she was looking at it in the car and it was talking about a lot of work that the Panthers did and about uh, how the Black Power Movement was not just uh, based in the U.S. or not just had impacts in the U.S., how it was global. And that was the thing. She was just like, how did this go global? Because she was trying to think about, you know, how do do things travel across – in other countries unless there's you know they didn't have the internet they didn't have these types of things i was like people followed stories i was like there used to also be these things called newspapers and people would get the stories and we made our own newspapers and that got us into a little bit of a conversation is like that was also a part of our resistance because one of the big tools for us to um to continue to just suffer is to not know what's happening in other places and to not be able to be inspired by what's happening in other places and not to feel like, and to feel like we are alone. Uh, And so we talked about a little bit of those things. I mean, she was maybe 
nine, maybe eight or nine. And so the boy was like three or four. So he had some food or something. He wasn't, he didn't care at all. But, um, but, but that was one of the things. And so when we talk about, um, even like we talked a little bit one time about the Black National Anthem. And we talked about how, as, how every verse ends with the hope that we have. And this is how we resist this. This is how we stand in not just the tragedy, but how we move from the tragedy to being our full selves. Um, and we talk about that. And so that's, what, that's how we talk about what's happening now and what's happened in the past without, you know, without trying to have our kids like, oh shit, what are we supposed to be doing? So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we try to talk about how these things, um, like for enslavement, which comes up is one folks talk about a lot, like how honest are you kids are, how honest are you with your kids? And I talk about how that interrupted our history as black folks, like that not, that is not our history solely. And so how we tell them full stories and full narratives um, that remind them of how we have been resisting and resilient for centuries, forever. Nicole, were you going to hop in there? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's so real. I mean, I just love that we're all in, in some ways saying the same thing, that conversation, talking with your kids, it's paramount. And asking questions has to be the majority of it, really giving them the opportunity to think about things. Um, I found now that now I get questions in a very different way that are super thoughtful, but a part of it is teaching that from the time they were two to ask questions about, wow, is my, is your skin just one color brown or is there lots of different colors? Is there gold? Is there yellow? Like engaging their imagination is so important. Really talking about resistance. Um, I think that, you know, to hear my children tell some stories, you would think black folks won every battle, right? We ran, won every fight, but because for them, we really do focus on like, what did we gain? Like, what were we fighting for? Why was that righteous? What did we gain? Um, one thing that I had to learn is really to be careful around self-deprecating talk. I'm from Western New York. It's kind of like our pastime to talk badly about ourselves. Like that's just how we relate to each other. It's not awesome for kids and particularly for black kids and frankly for black girls um, with the level of just lack of media representation. Um, you know, it's not okay actually for me to walk around and say, oh, look at me. Like, they know what the ugh means, right? I don't have to say something necessarily about being a black woman, but they see themselves in me. So it's super important. I mean, one of the things that, that I've had to think a lot about is, or had to cope with is that I have to understand as a parent that my children can deal with hard things. And that was a real um, tough place for me because I've seen a lot of tough things in the world and I you know when I looked at those little babies I was like I don't want you to ever have any horrible things happen and um, when my oldest daughter was about six I was picking her up from a play date in Washington DC from a friend who's a physician she was driving you know a nice car because she's a physician and um, as I was crossing the street to get my daughter I saw the police like whip around jump out and grab my six-year-old and they had my six-year-old in the street um she's a frankly she's a very bougie child so this was not something that she'd ever experienced before being grabbed like this and it turned out the police had just decided that um our friend must be doing something nefarious with someone else's car and oddly with someone else's child and it turned into a bit of a mess and we all had to use our skills and 
all of these things. And the whole time I'm thinking, what is this going to do to her? Like, what is going to happen? And I, I had to rely, frankly, on what I know as someone who works in schools and works with kids, which is to say, I am not going to lie to this child. I'm not going to tell her this was a mistake. I'm not going to tell her this is never going to happen again. I'm not going to tell her things. I'm not going to make promises. As a Black person living in the United States, I can't keep to her. So when she said to me, you know, mommy, are you scared? I said, yes, I'm scared. When she said, mommy, what's going to happen? I told her, honey, I don't know. Who, you know, who's going to protect us? We're going to try to protect ourselves. That was a really hard conversation, even now. And sometimes she mentions it and sometimes she doesn't, right? It's like, it doesn't, it's not as if I'm walking around with, you know, my traumatized child because this happened to her. But I have to also understand that that happened to her and that there does need to be an outlet and she does need this broader context. And I have to be prepared to give that. And one of the things I think about in terms of black parents is so many of us have done a lot so that we can shield ourselves from what is happening. And I get it, like I, I get the, the impetus. And yet here we are, we're raising children and we've got to raise them to be able to really process what's happening so they don't process it internally. So they don't believe that there's something inherently wrong with them. Yes. Um, we've, got, we've got to be able to, to give them that space. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's something that I've been thinking a lot about in my research and not to get too far afield, but this idea that these, these systems of oppression give us, gives us, give us narratives about ourselves that we are less than, and for some that you're better than, right? Superiority messages. It gives us these messages. And I've been thinking a lot about how we pick those up or appropriate them and what we know in terms of psychology around how, like how we can interrupt how we can rather than pick those things up and hold them so close to how we see ourselves, how we can create distance between ourselves and those narratives. The only way we can is, to, is through the conversation and understanding the meaning making, like how are our kids making meaning of X, Y, Z, the stereotypes, what they're seeing. We, we can't know unless we ask. And so I appreciate you bringing that up, Nicole, like this idea of and all actually, you, all of you have said that in different ways and modeled it, like the, asking the questions and being willing to answer them. So that fear that I don't, I won't know what to say. Sometimes I think kids, actually Beverly Tatum talks about it in her book, Why Are the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria? When you shush them around these topics and you don't, don't say anything in the moment or you, you say everything with the way you tense up, it tells them to not ask the questions and it shuts them down. So how, how can we open up and be be willing to answer their questions and maybe it's you have a quick response to say you know let me think more about that or I don't know let's research this together or something rather than oh, we don't talk about that or that's you know we don't discuss it okay so I want us to I want us to think about like together I don't know if folks have questions for each other um, but we have a few few minutes before we go to close. Is there anything that you all wanted to ask each other? I mean, I, I, I one of the things that I really appreciate is I appreciate uh, hearing people's stories about how they got into the work. And I heard a little bit from Tim, and I think I heard a little bit from you too, Adelaide. Um, and I think it's important for us to tell those stories and share those stories because for anybody who is, you can say is crazy enough to do this work or is uh, you know, driven enough to do this work. I think when we, we build and share about 
how we got into this space, it it is, you know, no, it, yes, it's our own journey. Nobody can take it exactly like we did, but it does give people the uh, understanding that this this happens. Is that something that you all have shared with your kids? Like how you got into being where you are? Sure, yeah, I, I certainly, I certainly did. I mean, we started talking early about that just, and I'm sure initially it was just a, what does daddy do kind of thing. Um, but once you start talking about what you do and nobody else's dad that you know is doing that and nobody else's mom that you know is doing that. And it's like, on the one hand, the kids think it's cool and you can sort of couch it. It's like, to them, it's like a superhero thing, right? Oh my God, you fight really bad people that are racist. Okay. That's, and, you know, when you've got kids that are seven and five, you'll take the superhero thing, right? You'll, you'll gladly accept that, even though you know that's ego-driven and not really healthy, but they're seven and five and it makes it easy to understand. But when I started talking a little bit about sort of the trajectory of how I, how I came to care about the issues that I care about and to, to do the work that I do, um, you know, I told these stories about going to this, you know, historically black college for preschool early childhood ed program and being surrounded in a really black space. I mean, it was, it was in every way a black space. Uh, my peer group, you know, all the friends were, I know all white people say we have black friends and we're usually lying. But at the time that I was three, four years old, it's like all I had, you know, and the authority figures were all black women. And that was critical because it meant that 20 years later, right, when I'm working in public housing in New Orleans uh, as a community organizer and I've got black women telling me what the deal is and telling me what life is. Um, I was taught at three years old to trust that judgment, you know, to not just assume that I knew better than they did. And, and having had that peer group meant that I was going to see some things early on that maybe a lot of other white kids wouldn't because I can see when they're being treated differently, when they're being disciplined more in the school, when they're being put in the standard level class, not at honors level class. So I could talk about those. And what that did for my kids was it gave them things to look for. You know, it gave them, okay, now you be on the lookout when your friends are being, you know, you notice when they're, if they're being treated differently and worse, you know, you notice who's in the classroom, how many of your teachers are are folks of color as opposed to white. How many, you know, yeah, you've got these handful of peers and mentors and authority figures, but still like notice the disproportionality, right? Um, I remember driving through neighborhoods and, you know, we would talk about the origin of how, why is this neighborhood pretty much all black? Why is this neighborhood pretty much all white? And we would be able to have those conversations going back to things that I remember my parents telling me about. So part of it is definitely the storytelling piece with kids. Uh, your own story, and, and that gives them permission to tell theirs and also to think about what their story is. Uh, and so I think that's a, it's a really important thing to get clear on. I think a lot of white folks in particular have never really told themselves their racial autobiography. And yeah. so part of what we've got to do, if we're going to talk to our kids about this, we got to get clear on our story. Because I don't think, you know, we got to get our story straight, so to speak, right? Because I don't think we've given it enough thought. And if you ask most people, you know, what were your early experiences around race? They can tell you the first time that they saw someone who was racially different for sure, but they haven't given it a lot of critical thought about what it meant that they saw that person and they asked their parent, Oh, who's that? And they pointed. And then the parent did as Bev Tatum talks about in her book, you know, the shushing thing, right? We got to process that. You got to talk about that. 
Um, yeah. So you understand what's going on. And I think kids are ready for that conversation. And if you're, if you're humble enough to share that narrative with your kids, then they'll be honest enough to share theirs with you. Yeah, I think that's the thing. Sometimes as parents, we feel like we are supposed to know it, know things. <laughs> like we're, we're supposed to know. And so oftentimes this is territory where it, we, it, it exposes our, our lack of knowledge. I had a call today with a reporter and she was asking me, you know, how do you, how do you talk to kids about looting? Like in a very shaming way. And I said, well, you know, honestly, I talk about the history of looting and context and what we call looting. Like, how did our museums get filled up? Looting. The Austin Tea Party, the Dawes Act, taking land away from indigenous folks. Uh, you know, uh, yeah, Black Wall Street. Like, there's all these examples of looting. And so we have to put things in context. And she was a little bit frozen because some of what I was saying, she didn't know. And so, of course, I talked with her about it, but I just thought, you know, it was one of those reminders of like, I think sometimes why we don't step into these conversations is because we weren't taught so much. Like this is stuff I had to learn outside of school in college and beyond. Um, okay, so I'm mindful of time. We have some questions that are rolling in. Uh, panelists, we had talked about doing like a, a two minute round robin of like final thoughts and tips before we went into questions. Do y'all wanna do that and then, and then go through some of the questions we have? Or go right into questions. You have your tips? All right, let's do it. So, uh, and these don't, aren't gonna be your final words because you have got questions coming, but if you had to do like a quick, this is, this is the tip I would give you, if you, your takeaway point, right. um, and maybe what you wanted to, to know if you had known some, if someone could have told you this earlier, what would it be? Bomani, will you start us off? Oh, yeah. <laughs> You know, my wife and I joke a lot about how, you know, parents never told us, our parents never told us, like, that parenting is hard as hell. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and other parents that we know that are our peers didn't tell us that either. So one of our jokes is, is that, you know, parenting is hard. Um, and I'm being a little bit facetious here, but it's hard, but in, and at the same time, it's extremely rewarding. Um, one of the things that I was thinking about is, like I told you, the shock that we had when our daughter told us that she didn't want to be brown and how much we used to laugh when she used to talk about her color as being rainbow, because that's how she said rainbow. Uh, but then the, like, the swell of pride that me and my wife have and still have when in third grade, she was told to dress up like one of her favorite um, people. And, you know, we asked her, well, who are you going to do? Who are you going to be? And she was like, Harriet Tubman. And we're like, all right, <laughs> we're doing something. So we're smacking high fives or, you know, one of the other things. Again, like, I mean, if you know me, you know I'm silly. When she said, uh, when she, you know, she grew up with us. So she saw the whiz first. <laughs> and, um, and so when she finally saw the Wizard of Oz, she, she was like, oh, that's like the white wind. And I was like, yeah, we did it right. All right, cool. Um, so it's, it's those things that you have to, that I think that we should talk about is not just the little moments of joy, but how, how think about the process of getting to those little moments of joy when they do happen. And I think that's that's something that we can share with other parents is that, you know, yeah, it's like these last 10 weeks have been <laughs> with the homeschooling and 
Um, I mean, my wife took it on more than I did because I was working the whole time. It was like really almost traumatizing. But the, you know, the fact that my son did it and went through it is one thing, but he's six and I don't want him to have to push through stuff, right? He's six. I want him to be like, yeah, I love school. And he loved it until we had to do it online. And so now we got to prepare for what is to come. And, and, and it's those types of things. It's, it's yeah, I mean, right. relish the moments of joy, I guess. And show the black whiz first. Show the whiz first. Always show the whiz first. Always show the whiz. <laughs> Nicole. Oh my goodness, Bomani. Yes, um, just to piggyback off of um, something that Bomani said, you know, I was saying before, like how much I wanted to protect my children. And what I've had to learn is that per- by preparing them, right, to be self-aware, to understand situations, even when those situations might be difficult, is the protection. That's how I protect them. Um, and for, you know, for white parents, I guess I'm going to give white parents advice for a second. I just think about, I have a lot of clients, I have families that come to me and they normally, this type of family comes to me after their child has kind of spray painted something, a racial slur or whatever. And, and they always say the same thing. I, we, we're not racist. But after a few minutes of conversation, they, I know they have not had the conversations. They haven't been willing to go to those tough places. And I think that that actually applies to all parents because sometimes there are things that I'm not comfortable with talking to my kids about, but they're ready. And so their readiness, this is my, my overall um, tip, is that your child's readiness will likely outpace your readiness. And so a lot of what we have to do is work on ourselves, work on our understanding. Like Dr. Banks is saying, like what we don't know, um, when we use terms like looting and rioting, which specifically we do not use in my house, right? But to be prepared to explain why when they hear it from someone else. So really that preparedness and really just your own attitude and your ability to almost self-regulate and educate as as they need and as you need too is is huge and makes makes a huge difference research shows that and i also will attest to that as a parent yeah so i would um build on those points and the earlier conversation um uh this for me this has not been about teaching my children so much as either learning alongside or um, modeling that learning, right? And so the question, Bomani, that you asked earlier in terms of our, our stories, there are many parts of my story before my kids were part of my life that I do share with them. Um, and I am really clear, if nothing, I'm really clear about not being kind of fully baked or arrived or, you know, done. And so um, sometimes they are really interested in learning along with me. And sometimes I'm sharing information with them. And often I'm just demonstrating my own continuation of the journey, right? They see what I read. I narrate a lot. And I think that that is, um, so if I had to put it in advice form, I would, I would just say like, you know, start and attend to yourself and make that learning, um, and your own feelings about that available to your children uh, is as important as what you will say to them, right? And this is some of the demonstration that Tim was talking about too. I live in a predominantly white town. Um, I am not gonna allow that to limit 
um, or uh, put the boundaries on what I can and cannot talk to my kids about. In fact, we talk about whiteness, right? And we talk about how white our town is and we talk about the sadness that brings us, right? And so there's just, I don't think that anyone in our country lives in a place or is, uh, has, you know, is exempt from our history. Um, you can't, you, this conversation that race is everywhere, right? It's always present. So there, there are, um, there are starting points, at, you know, at our fingertips. And so I think putting yourself on that journey, making that available uh, to your kids and accessible and, and demonstrating and showing them and they will um, come along with you, some of them, right, at, at the times that they are, are ready. And there's a lot of ways you can bake that into your family experience. And I would, I would say yes to all of that. And I'll just add one thing real quickly for white parents in particular, I think you just have to be prepared to allow yourself to make mistakes. Now that may seem obvious. That may seem very, very all because all parents know they make mistakes, but part of whiteness is that it leads white parents to feel a need to be on point on top all the time of our stuff and to have this like level of perfection, even in a job like parenting that is by definition not going to be done perfectly. We're going to screw up a million. I've screwed up like five times today, not around race. I did okay on race today, but like I screwed up other stuff. Like the other day I threw some of my kid's food out that she had made that she was hoping to stretch out for three days. And I thought it was like done and I threw it out and I apologized and we're all good. But there's part of whiteness that says now, you know, but a serious issue like race, you need to know exactly what to say and you need to know exactly how to do it. And if you don't know exactly what to say, then don't say anything. Right. And then if you do screw up, it's not like apologizing for throwing the food out like I did today. No, that that's a minor thing, but this is a big thing. And then we shut down. We have to relinquish that that assumption, first of all, that we can be perfect and let go of the expectation that we're going to be able to answer all our kids' questions. We can't answer if you if my kids ask me questions about calculus, I don't know. I never took a calculus class. I would say, hmm, either ask someone who knows or let's discover that together. Well, the same thing is true here. A lot of times your kids are going to ask you questions about what's going on in the world and you're not going to have the answer. But rather than, you know, saying, oh, look, a bird, you know, to like distract them from the thing that they want to talk about. If you don't know the answer, then sit down and let's, let's, let's find the answers, right? I want to learn that too. Let's learn this together. And a lot of times, you know, it's sort of what Adelaide was saying, like there's, there's a lot of this where you're learning side by side with your child. You might even be learning from your child. But one very quick thing, when, when George Zimmerman was acquitted, I learned something that night. So I, I, I tucked my oldest kid in. She was 2013, I guess. Or yeah, 2013. So she was 11, 12, 12 years old and tucked her in and she's crying and she's falling apart. And I'm holding her and I'm doing what dads do, which is I said, you know, it's going to be okay. And she said, no, it's not. And in that moment, you know, this 12 year old was teaching me something because she could sense it wasn't going to just be all right. Right. Unless we make it all right. Unless we actually do something. But dad just saying that. And instead of like going, oh, no, really, really, which is the dad thing to do. It's like, no, really, it'll be okay. I was just like, no, you're you're right. In this moment, you have more insight than me. So allow that moment as a parent. Great, great. Thank you all. Um, so we have some questions. Let's see if we can do this rapid fire, but we're, per we're perfect on time. I love that. Thank you all for, for, for keeping your comments concise so that we could have some back and forth. Um, so there was, there was a question, a few questions about resources. 
And so I want to send folks definitely to ReStories, but I wonder if panelists want to um, put the re some resources in the chat or mention them briefly. Uh, but ReStories is a place people ask about books. And I know in, at St. Louis Public Library, one of the librarians just posted uh, resources around books. And there's some good book lists that are out there, but if folks want to shout those out, um, and if you put them in the chat and Zoom, we'll make sure they get in the comments over on Facebook. Uh, there was a specific question around language. So Nicole, you mentioned that you don't say looting or rioting in your house. And the question was asked, what other language might you use? And in our house, we talk about an, it being an uprising. Yes. In context, what do you use? So we have been talking about it being an uprising and we've talked about why. So it's that narration. If I'm sure some of you have read those child development books that talk about like sing-song things, kind of still do that with kids a bit and you can use that um, ongoing. But we explain, you know, it's an uprising. People are really concerned about what's going on and we really need social change. Um, I also don't use the word looting. It's actually not because I'm... Uh, wholeheartedly against it, but if you continually use a word that has a racial implication in how it's being used in the media, your child's going to pick up that racial implication. So I just describe what we're seeing. You're seeing broken windows. Yes, people did go into that target and they took things that aren't theirs. Yep. Do we take things that aren't, you know, that we shouldn't, should we do that? Like what my seven-year-old was like, they took things that weren't theirs. And I said, yes. And then I went back to talking about why people were angry. Um, so I, I'm just very careful with language and I just, um, my encouragement is, and I can't give you a list of words, right? But you know, we know in this situation that there are words that are used in our society to describe black folks that aren't used to describe white folks. Um, the term thug, not that it's come up. If it did, we would have a whole conversation about why that's not language that, that we use. And I my hope, right, and what the research says is having these conversations explicitly at younger ages really helps when kids get to ages where they don't want to so much have those conversations with their parents. Yes. Okay, another question was top three white allies that we should make sure our kids know about because both Adelaide and Tim talked about making sure you teach about whiteness as being, um, white people as being part of the resistance as well. Mm. So I've been, I'll uh, go first and let Tim, he probably has more exhaustive lists than I do, but I've been learning a lot more about Elijah Lovejoy um, recently. And I was also, um, uh, it was new learning to me, which I actually shared with my kids as new learning. Can you believe that I've grown up and I've learned about the letter from Birmingham jail? I don't know how many times. And the fact that there were white allies listed in that letter that I did not know and that I hadn't, I didn't grow up researching was really surprising. And then we looked at um, those names together. So I will leave that as a piece of research or a fun family project for you all to explore as a good starting point. Um, you know, for me, I, 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 there are so many, obviously, that I could mention. Um, I mentioned, you know, could mention the Grimke sisters who are abolitionists. I could mention Jim Zwerg, could mention Bob and Dottie Zellner, both of whom I'm, I'm fortunate to consider friends. Um, Mab Seagrest, uh, amazing, amazing activist and scholar. Um, but I think the important thing is that when we begin to go out and look at this history, uh, that, we, that we focus in on those white, whether we call them allies or collaborators or co-conspirators or solidarity 
property workers, whatever term we use, pick the ones that not all of, you know, don't just pick the ones that were martyred. Because what I find we do in history, if we talk about them at all, we talk about John Brown, and we should learn about John Brown. We should learn the full story about John Brown, not just that he heard God telling him to overthrow slavery, and therefore we assume he'd lost his mind, right? But that his whole family had this long abolitionist history. Um, but John Brown was ultimately martyred, right? Viola Laiuzo was martyred. Um, you know, Goodman and Schwerner were martyred. Um, and so you don't just want to pick the ones who died, because if you're trying to inspire young people to join the struggle and all you give them are martyrs, you're either going to end up with fanatics who want to join a struggle thinking they may die, which I don't, we don't need fanatics. We don't need people who, who want to martyr themselves for the cause, or you're going to scare the hell out of people and they're not going to want to do the work at all. So it's important. The ones that I just mentioned, you know, these are people, yeah, did, did Jim's word get beaten? Absolutely. Um, but, but, but he, he lived, you know, through that. Did, did, is Mab Seagrass still doing the work? Absolutely. Bob Zellner, Dorothy Zellner. Yes. So it's important to find those kinds of, of people and those kinds of, of names and to, you know, and to teach kids about those. And there are actually some very good children's books about, uh, uh, there's one that's about Zwerg and John Lewis in particular. There are some other children's books that actually talk about that. Actually a children's book about John Brown, which my kids yeah. thought was fascinating. So, Yeah. So there were there was a cluster of questions that I want to lead us into next because I know a couple of folks at least actually several folks all of you work with young people in some way and have probably had experience with schools and how to approach schools about integrating some of this education in the curriculum and then there's some teachers that are asking for curriculum advice but before we go into that there I just want to name um, a couple another cluster of questions and if you if folks panelists want to respond to this there have been a, a few questions around how to talk to children who are multiracial. And um, my, my response there is that you wanna, just like we're talking about telling full stories for kids who are white or who are black, you wanna tell those full stories for children who are multiracial. And so, and yet there, are, in terms of identity development, we know that oftentimes multiracial children feel like they have to choose and pick. And so in that way, you want to have a real sense of openness and exploration for how they experience themselves, but then also how the world experiences them. So we know that some kids, how they present is going to have a stimulus value. So there was one person who had a multiracial child who said they present as white. And so how do I navigate that? Um, but often we have like Barack Obama is the, is the example people often bring up that he is multiracial, yet we identify him as black. And so... It's complicated and I think much of what was said tonight uh, fits in that you want to be open to what they think, how they make meaning of it, and to be curious with them to tell their full stories. So if folks want to respond to that, and then the, the other cluster that's connected to that, I think, is there have been some questions around like, how do we talk about other types, aspects of identity, or how do we talk about just the fact that love wins? And I think it's important to understand that, yes, like as a black woman, my womanness isn't separated from my blackness, isn't separated from my cisgenderedness or my heterosexuality, right? Like these are all connected and we often in our society sidestep the conversation about race. So it's, I think it's important for us to, yes, talk about other sorts of oppression, absolutely. And also to make sure that we are centering race in the sense that right now, that's in our what's in our face and in our history of our country we often want to avoid those questions and that 
So this idea that love wins, yes, love is important, and we can't, we can't negate the way in which race impacts people's life outcomes and experiences. So to be colorblind, to try to, to minimize the importance of race actually doesn't, doesn't get us out of it. We can't nice our way out of it. So we've got to be willing to face it. Other folks have thoughts? I, I mean, make the offer that for whoever, I'm not sure who asked the question, multiracial question, but from um, uh, the white mothers that uh, I know who have multiracial children or children who have a different racial identity than they do, what I've learned from them and just been so inspired by is again, like modeling their own learning journey and not uh, saying like, this is what we believe in this family. This is how we all together navigate situations or this is like our our philosophy or our filter on everything um so i've been just from an observer and learner perspective so inspired by them able being able to say this is the journey i'm on as a white woman or a black woman right and and your experience may be different and leaving space for that has been um just really beautiful to see and i was just going to say something about the 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 different identity piece that that somebody had asked about kids are interesting i think kids are actually better at seeing the intersectionality pieces of this than we are as adults because by the time that you're old enough to be a quote-unquote professional in this conversation right we tend to be siloed like some of us have focused on race mostly or some have focused on gender or class or sexuality or whatever and we we sort of have an um an interest in defending that silo in a way uh all of those silos very important in and of themselves but also very much connected but if you ask a 10 year old kid or a 12 year old kid to talk about well how is it different to be um, a white male versus a white female, a black male versus a black female. So, and even someone whose you know, gender identity is somewhere on a spectrum between those because kids that are 13 and 14 and 12 and 10 can talk about that in ways they maybe couldn't, could prior generations. Right? My kids talk about that from a very early age. And so kids are actually able to process those fine distinctions, but also to show the connections. So I don't think we should shy away from those intersectional conversations. I think we should actually lean into those because that allows young people to find themselves in every part of the conversation. And, and I think, you know, they can lead us in that regard a lot better than we can lead them sometimes. Absolutely. In our last few minutes, what about the question about schools? Folks have asked, you know, how, how do you, approach schools to integrate this information. Uh, there have been a lot of questions about that who are teachers about resources. How do you interface with schools so that these conversations are happening there in addition to in the home? I think that is a whole nother webinar, but there were so many questions about it. I thought I would leave us some moments to answer. Well, Bomani and I both agree that Teaching for Change is a wonderful uh, resource to folks. Um, but one of the things I would say, it's especially when folks are nervous about approaching administrations around this particular work, one suggestion I always have is look at the mission of the school. Public schools, private schools, charter schools, they all have missions. I'm not saying look at their equal opportunity employment policy. I don't care about that. What does the mission say? Yeah. In order to fulfill that mission, there are certain things that children need. Children across race, but specifically because of their race, gender, sexuality, family orientation, all of those things are important to fulfill. I don't even need to, I'm, I'm gonna bet 
any mission of a school, right, um, that it is not openly a, a hateful place, is going to talk about nurturing and helping children grow. Children need to have a firm sense of identity in order to grow up well adapted and adjusted in this environment. We know that. I mean, that's, that is something that has been well researched as well. And so I always come from what is the mission of the school and how does this further that mission? And very often coming from that place is, can be more effective than saying we need this and we're not doing that. Um, it's really saying how do we enhance who we are? And, you know, obviously a lot of us work in schools, so there would be more specifics. It's a huge question, but um, I also um, suggest um, Embrace Race as well um, as a resource. It's a resource for parents, but also there's some resources for teachers. And uh, Teaching Tolerance, I think, also has some good resources. One resource in particular I'd want to point teachers to is they have a curriculum from K to 12, and you can go and see the benchmarks of what children should be learning social and emotionally um, through, through K through 12. And so that can give some, if you have leave as a teacher to teach some things that you just want to implement in your own classroom, there's a lot of just helpful information and tips in that curriculum. I would also offer not to go it alone. Um, so off, I, in my experience, these conversations are often uh, quite silenced in schools or can feel really um, challenging or people have a lot of trepidation bringing it up um, or thinking about changing their teaching practices or curricular choices. Um, there are other teachers in your school that are probably feel the same way and start finding them is important. And there are definitely parents who also feel the same way and finding them is important. And the more that you have some camaraderie with each other, um, the more you can support each other and, and work towards setting a, a new normal. When we act by ourselves, it's easy to be shut down or silenced or marginalized. I think that's a great place to leave things. Of course, there's more that we could have a conversation about. And I'm, I'm hoping that panelists, if you'll drop your social media handles and how people can follow you in the chat, I'll make sure those get over on Facebook Live because that's where this will, you know, it'll live beyond Zoom. Um, but I think it's just a reminder that, that, that we don't do this alone, that you don't have to go at it alone. And that building community is one of the, way that, one of the ways that social change happens. And so I really appreciate you all for being here tonight, for being a part of the webinar. Panelists, thank you. Attendees, thank you for engaging in your questions. Um, yeah, it's, it's been really great and helpful. Um, oh, I know what else I was gonna say. I should just say, as I mentioned at the beginning, I'm Dr. Kira Banks and we have Raising Equity, which is a podcast. So some of, some of these conversations that I've had with my own children, I've recorded. And actually, Adelaide's oldest, Eloise spoke at a city council meeting and we spoke with her about what it was like to do that, what it was like to be in the city council, to be a young person standing up against racism. So just to let you know, that's a place where you can hear more of these conversations and yeah, hopefully you can connect with us. Um, I really appreciate you all for being with us. I'm Dr. Kira Hudson-Banks. You can follow me on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, or Instagram. And uh, we appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you.